Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. I want to take you this Easter to a place I never thought I would ever uh, do on Easter. Uh, in fact, I've never taught it to a congregation before in the sense that we're going to look at it today. But it's a very famous passage for people who, who go to church. And I want to show you why it's famous, see if it resonates with you. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. You see why it's famous, because we all feel this way sometimes. Watch. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. So Paul is simply saying what all of us have felt. We have aspiration. We aspire to do good things. To be more generous. To serve better. To be more humble. To be nicer. All these things. Truth is, there are times we don't feel like we have the ability to do it, to pull it off in our lives. But Paul gives kind of an explanation for why he feels this way. In verses 17 and 20, look at So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but look at what he's saying. Sin which dwells in me is doing it. And then it says in verse 20, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, here's his explanation. I'm no longer the one doing it. Sin which dwells in me. Now, so Paul kind of gives two thoughts for you to wrap your mind around why we live in this, this divided self. There's two of them. There's me and then there's this sin which seems to be inside of it. So he's divided. But he also says, notice, sin dwells in me. And that word is very important. Because it tells you right away something really important. Sin isn't something that acts on you from the external. Oh, you'll never believe what it did to me. No, it wells up from within, inside of it. Dwells has the idea of to reside in. It lives in me. It's a part of me. It's deeply embedded inside of me. Internal. That's what he said. Now, C.S. Lewis has written something on morality in mere Christianity. It's very profound. Listen to what he says. Human beings all over the earth have the curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. And they can't get rid of that. Secondly, he says, they do not, in fact, behave that way. So they ought to behave like this, but they do not do. And he writes, these two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking in the universe. So whatever Paul is thinking in this Romans 7 text, it is the basis for the clearest possible spiritual thinking that you could have. Now he is very distraught, not taking you into every text that he uses in this passage for the sake of time, but he's beside himself, literally, there's two of them. He's beside himself emotionally. He tore up about this problem. Now, my goal 
in just a few minutes, my goal is to make you feel that badly this Easter. I want you to feel horrible for just a minute. Because if I can get you to feel like he feels, like right now you're all right, I feel kind of bad now and then, but I'm not distraught over this. Why is he? Well, it's very important that you get there, and I want to try to help you get there. So listen, uh, I read this week, read The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I've seen the no story, but I've never read it. The narrative is disturbing. It's amazing. It tells the story of a man who's conflicted, divided, good and evil. He wants to separate them. He thinks that he'd be a better person if he could somehow get rid separate his bad from his good. So he creates this potion. Oh, it doesn't go out. Is it going out? So he creates this potion. It's going to come in and out. And this potion is designed to ignite make him be Mr. Hyde. And in the mornings when he wakes up, he'll be Dr. Jekyll, the good son. And the good won't be disturbed by the bad. It will have already come out. That means all day long he can be a really good person without in any way being impeded for his good by Mr. Hyde. So he takes the potion and something happens that shocks him. When Mr. Hyde finally really does come out in his full color, he's shocked that he's far more evil than he thought he was. He writes this in the narrative. I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original sin. This being, Edward Hyde, was inherently maligned as every act and thought centered on self. Do you know what the word Hyde means in the story? Hideous. It means hideous and hidden. A hideous side of me that is hidden. We all have it. And all of us, almost all of us, don't assess ourselves truly accurately when it comes to this text. We see a good side to us, and we see a bad side to us, but we think our good side is a little better than our bad side. So we don't truly accurately assess ourselves. Well, this potion that he drinks forces its evil to come out in full color, and he's overwhelmed. Well, Paul is just as overwhelmed by his evil in this sense. His good is not what he focuses on. Well, Dr. Jekyll got there by drinking a potion. How does Paul get to feel that? And how do I help you and myself feel the way Paul does without giving you a potion? Well, here's my suggestion. My suggestion is that you actually have been drinking the potion. It's a potion almost all of us can out. And I wish I had time to read to you how the potion he puts together is described in the text. Because it's colorful and it's mixtures of these freaky things that come together and form this weird kind of potion that's very risky. And he knows it to take. But he takes it. Chapter 7 is all about the potion that was taken to make Paul feel that way. And the potion is, stay with me now, the law. The law is the potion. What do you mean by that? A moral sin. 
the moral standard that you have put out there for yourself to make you feel like Dr. Jekyll, to feel better about yourself, is the moral standard. That's the potion. Whatever you say in your head that makes you feel better than your bad side, that's the potion. And for Paul, it's the law. For the Jews, it would have been the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. And we borrow from that and we use it, but we add to that over our lifetime. To that and create this other kind of moral standard, weird things we add to it. Some of us like certain laws. Like some of the Ten Commandments really bug us when people do. Like if they lie to us, do anything, but don't lie to me. Or don't steal my stuff. Do anything, but don't take my stuff. That's the lowest of love. So we take some out and use them and elevate them up here, judge other people by them, and we feel better about ourselves because we don't do them. That's the potion. And you're sipping on it. And what it's making you feel like is that you're more like Dr. Jekyll. You feel good about yourself and you're hiding your hideous side. Some of us create laws in our lives because we mix this concoction of, you know, like when you were a kid, your mom made you feel horrible because you didn't clean your bedroom. Remember, you were dirty, going to hell because you didn't clean your bedroom. You start to feel bad. Then you grow up with this clean, freaky side of you, and your whole family sucked into it, and you hold them to the standard, and everyone feels dirty. Because cleanliness is the standard, and I'm clean, and you're not. Right? Create standards. I just got one this Friday. This past Friday, I got this in the mail from my homeowners association. <laughs> National headquarters of evil, right here. <laughs> On 4412, it was observed only two trees are in your front yard, and the requirement is three. <laughs> your violation of the covenant article, Roman numeral seven. How weird is that? <laughs> In parentheses, a little t, a lowercase t, and then in parentheses beside that, d, d, or maybe e, e, and or section b, dash, seven of the rules and regulations. Now, I want to say you put a whole list together of who's good and who's bad. Two tree people are out. Two tree people don't cut it. We don't like two tree people. We like three tree people. And you will meet up to our standards. See, it's, it's a potion, we drink it, and we feel good about it. I have three trees in my life. Can't believe you don't have two trees. Three trees. Two trees? What kind of person are you? See, that's the idea. We start to feel good about ourselves. Now watch this potion and how it works, because you're drinking. You're gulping it. Some of you are gulping it. And what the potion does is make you feel good about it. Paul says, let me tell you something about that potion you drink. You want to see something? Watch what he says in verse 5. That potion you drink, while you were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which Paul was talking about, which were aroused by the law, they're at work in your members to bring forth fruit of death, to bring forth evil. Okay? The law arouses those sinful passions. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, the law is not sin. On the contrary, you wouldn't have known sin except by the law. And so here's what Paul says. Here's the problem with the potion. You drink it, and really what the law was designed to do, the potion was just designed to show you your bad side. 
not to make you feel good about your good self. It actually reveals sin. It shows sin in your life, and it arouses sin. You know how the law does that. You know how the law makes you kind of want to stay a two-tree person instead of a three-tree person. That's what the law does. When I was a kid, my father was a very angry uh, uh, brawler. Um, and I've talked to you about it before, but he was a very scary person. And everyone knew, everyone in my father's life, friends, family, everyone knew, you could tell by his eyes when he's lost. And we, were, we were dead fearful of him. We woke him up with a broomstick. Okay. We were dead fearful of him. When I was in little elementary school, my dad said, do it. He did I didn't have to be told twice. So I didn't want to look at those eyes. One day he did something he never had done before. He walked by my room on this particular day before he went to work, and he said to me, there's a $20 bill on my dresser. Don't touch it. And I, part of me just said, I wouldn't think of the dresses. I wouldn't even think of the $20 bills until you just brought it up. But it left my head for fear, it left my head, and halfway through the day, I realized that this blue Schwinn bike that I had would look better orange. My friend can agree. But we needed money to go buy pink. Well, guess where it was? My father clued me. So I went over there to the dresser and I grabbed that $20 bill and went and painted my bike for half a day. Drove around with a beautiful orange bike. Until my father got And you know what happened? Those eyes. Where's my 20? What are you doing with an orange bike? And I'm not even going to tell you how you changed my life. But I will say this. I hadn't even known the problem until it alerted me. That's how the law arouses sin. In Pilgrim's Progress, which is an analogy of Christian's life, person's, a person's life, really, he walks into this room and he's being taught the Christian life and he walks, brought into a room where dust is everywhere, thick. It represents sin. Then Mr. Law comes in. He's a broom and he just starts doing this, sweeping it all up. All the sin that's always been there. So it's not like the law created sin. It's that the law just showed me what was really there and pushed it up and made me choke on it. Everyone in the room now is choking because sin has been stirred up. That's what the law does. It just stirs it up. It doesn't clean it. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't help the problem. It's helpless, actually. It's sterile. It's impotent. All it does is show you what's wrong. It can't fix. Not, Paul's not done making this clear. Notice what he says here. Let me give you an example. See the law, you shall not cut it. Let me show you how the potion works. So you drink and you get to that covet. Paul picks the last command. That's number 10. It's as if he's let you off the hook for one through nine. And you can start to feel good about yourself. Hey, the first nine looks like I'm good on it. The average person would think, hey, nine to one? Surely, regardless of how high the standard is, regardless that it's perfection and holiness, surely I'm okay if nine to one. Paul says, 
You're probably doing this. Watch this. Sin, though, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So it didn't just name what my sin was, it actually showed me that there was far more coveting there than I thought there was. And here's how it happens. You go through one through nine and you start up at the top of the command list and you say, you know what, today? I didn't build any altar and worship. I didn't build something that looks like God and worship it today. And you go, there's one for me. I'm winning. Okay? The second one comes up and you go, hey, you know what, I didn't commit adultery. I, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't kill anybody today. It's early in the morning. I haven't lied yet. All right, you just go right through the list, right? I haven't stolen anything today yet. Because you feel good about yourself. That's the potion. But the law is doing its job by doing something else to you. When you get to number 10, so you can't read number 10 and say, I didn't do it externally, because it's only an internal thing. All of a sudden, here's what number 10 does. Number 10 just rips your heart open and shows you that other side. It shows you just how evil you are. It takes all the commandments and flips them on their side. You didn't, you didn't have to lust. You didn't have to commit adultery today. All you had to do was lust to commit. You didn't have to kill anyone today. All you had to do was be angry enough to. And all it was doing was showing you just how evil you really are. That hideous inside of you, the potion you're drinking, is actually showing you you're worse than you think you are. Not better. It's a powerful moment. That's why Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Man, until the law came, I was living free. I was a two-tree happy person. Until the law came. When the law came, I realized, I'm short a tree. If it weren't for section 7, T-O-D or E, B-7, I'd have been a happy two tree person. But when the commandment came, I thought I was alive. Really, I was dead. I thought I was alive to meeting the standard. I thought God would be happy with me. I thought my good outweighed my bad. I thought I was morally okay. Much better than others. See, as soon as you start to feel okay, that's when you look even worse. Because then your heart is filled with self-righteousness. See, here's what the law is really good at. The law is really good at finding something that you can feel good about. <coughs> Right? Something that makes your evil look better than it is. And almost forces you to say, look, I really am up here. Look, God really ought to be happy with me. There's no way God at the end of time would be unhappy with me. And all of a sudden, your good turns on you. And you're actually just a self-righteous, judgmental person. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is taking this potion and it's ruining him. Mr. Hyde has come out at night and commit atrocities. He decides he can't take the potion anymore. He decides that rather than take the potion, try to bring the evil side and separate them, 
that what he'll do is he'll fan the flame the good side. He's just going to wake up every day and do more good than he's ever done in his life. He's going to work harder at not lying. He's going to work harder at being nicer to his neighbors. He's going to work harder at everything in his life. And hopefully, he says literally in the narrative, after all, I reflected, he says, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past. I'll make up for all the bad I've ever done by doing a few more good things. How much? How much more good things do you have to do? I don't know. Nobody knows. You just hope. He's sitting in the park. It's a sunny day when he decides this. He's watching people walk by and reads, says this. After all, I reflected I was like my neighbors. Then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment, that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea. Here's the moment, dreadful shuddering. I looked it down, and all of a sudden, without taking the potion, I was Mr. Hyde again. So Mr. Hyde showed up, and you didn't take the potion, and he still showed up? When did Mr. Hyde show back up? He showed up just as he thought he was really good. Just as he thought he was okay. Just as he thought he's a three-tree person and he's happy. He meets the standard. That's when he looked the ugliest. That's what the laws of design show you. That at your best, worse than you thought. Because that's when you're self-righteous, judgmental, and hold it over God somehow. What was it that made Paul such an emotional wreck like that moment for Dr. Jekyll? He realized that the potion he'd been drinking, counting on to make him look better before God, actually made him look worse before God. And he realized that the law that he was counting on to change everything in the end couldn't help him. The law is not your savior. The little standard in your head that you use to judge other people by and feel yourself better by is actually making you look worse. That is a revelation. The law is not your savior. You know what the law does? It crushes and it demands. It exposes. It doesn't soften. It bends. It doesn't lighten up. It accepts nothing. Notice what he says. The commandment came, was supposed to give me life. It proved to result in death for me. Look, sin took the opportunity through the commandment and it deceived me. Sin deceived me into thinking that I could make up a moral standard and that it would make me right with God. And you know what it did? It killed me. It did just the opposite. The law takes no excuses, hears no apologies, offers no forgiveness. It only reveals sin. That's why verse 12 says, is the law bad? No. The law's just doing what it's supposed to do. The law was never intended as a life raft for you to jump on and hope it would save you. That's not what the, the law, the law was just to tell you you were drowning. 
And that's not a bad thing to hear. So in that case, it's good, but it can't save you. It's good, but it's impotent. And look what verse 13 says. It concludes with this. Sounds complicated, but it's not. Did the good law become a cause of death for me? The law didn't kill you. The law just revealed that you had sin in you. See, in order that it might be shown to be sin that was causing the death, so that through the commandment, sin would look, say those last two words, utterly I was using the law to, look, to make me look good, and it turns out the law makes me look utterly sinful. That's why Paul says this in verse 24. Told you he was an emotional wreck. Wretched man that I am. He comes to the place where he realizes there is no hope for me. And the idea that I would have been sold on that little potion to change me makes me sicker. Now look what he says next. Look what his next word is. Who? Now we realize it's not a what that's going to save him, it's a who. All of a sudden you realize, I can't save myself because I'm divided. I can't use the law because it shows me I'm divided. Who then is going to rescue me? Because the law is helpless. Well, look what Galatians 24 says. You'll love this verse. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Scooted right up alongside of you and showed you, look at Say those last words right there. To lead you to Christ. The law was never to save you. It was to lead you to a Savior. It was to show you that you were so utterly sinful, you needed one and you couldn't save yourself. Some of you are counting on the very thing that's condemning you. So Paul gives an analogy. This is how he closes the story. It's beautiful. Gives us axiomatic principle in verse 1. Don't you know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? In other words, if you're dead, the law doesn't apply. You run, a, you run a red light, you get an accident, you get killed, the officer doesn't write you a ticket. You're dead. None of you are right. Okay? Great principle when you think, hey, so how do I get out of the law? Paul's almost acting like a spiritual counselor here for a So let me tell you how to get out of it. He gives an illustration of a married woman bound by the law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law. Don't get any Easter ideas. Stay with me. How do I get out of this marriage? Well, if he dies, you're released from it. You can't be obligated to a corpse. You can't. So what he says in verse 3, so then, if her husband's living and she's joined to another man, well, then the law's going to show right up because she's under the jurisdiction of it, and she's going to be called an adult. But if her husband dies, well, then she's free to look at the last phrase, to be joined to another man. Paul is saying, you know what it's like using the law to make yourself feel better? It's like being in a bad relationship. It's like being in a bad marriage. And we all hooked up with somebody at one point in our lives, especially in this moral standard. Some we hooked up with a standard of morality that we thought would make our dark, sinful side go away and make us look a little better in the eyes of God. 
I, all the while, we were hooked up, married to a demanding spouse who never let up, a perfectionist who couldn't wait to condemn, couldn't wait to catch you doing wrong. Paul is saying, Paul's like giving spiritual marriage counseling here and saying, you need a new partner. You need to run from that first marriage to the law and marry somebody else. How do you do it? You have to die to do it. Here's the thing. Here it is. It's so beautiful. This is what he says about My brother, you were made to die to the law. How do you die to the law? Through the body of Christ. Christ, the who in the equation, the who in the question. Die, and when he died, when you put your trust in him, his death applies to the law, and it cuts you off from the law, so the law no longer has jurisdiction over you. The law can no longer condemn you, not because you're good, but because you're in someone who is good, you see. His death disconnects you from the law, and then look, because he forgives, so that you might be joined to another. Once you're dead in the law, now you can be joined to someone else. Who's that? To him who was, here's Easter, raised from the dead. A new husband. A living marriage partner. Not a condemning marriage partner. Someone who loves, someone who you love back. And notice, in order that we might bear fruit for God, all of a sudden now, in this new marriage, I want to obey. I want to serve. He's changed my life. His death has separated me from that old system. I say every Easter, you know, if we're picking teams in the backyard like today in the afternoon, we're playing out with family. If you're picking teams and you get to pick first, and there's a guy out there who's been raised from the dead, aren't you going to pick him first? Sure you're going to pick him first. How much more? Does that apply to a marriage partner? If you can pick one that rose from the dead, how much better would that be? That's what Paul is saying. Thanks, in verse 25, you know what he says? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the who. He died and he rose again. When you trust in him, when you walk away from the law and you turn to him in trust and you count on his death and resurrection, immediately what happens is he disconnects you from that old thought process of the law and the moral standard you use. Watch you to the world. And connects you to somebody else and now there's a whole new operation, a new basis for living. I don't wake up every day. Let me ask you this. On your honeymoon morning, what you want somebody to tap you on the shoulder, wake you up, one honey, one honey, and he says, "Hey, I just want to go over to the house that you said yesterday." All right, because you said some stuff in there I'm really banking on. All right, and I, I just want you to know I'm watching you right, all day to see if you do the things. No, I'm not feeling too good. I like some teeth. Uh, isn't that going to reveal your dark side? Isn't that going to reveal your dark side? Is he going to be wearing that hot tea? Probably. See, that's the law for you. What you're counting on is all it's doing is condemning. 
Jesus Christ comes in, takes the vow, that whole law thing, and you become connected to him in a relationship. What you want is somebody that you wake up to. And you want to do what he wants you to do because you love him. Not for any other reason. Not because there's a list. I don't want to be married to a list. I want to be married to a lover. And guess what Jesus Christ did when he died for you? He became sin for you. He knows your dark side. You know what Isaiah 52 and 53 says? He became sin for you. That means he became hideous for you. He became Mr. Hyde for you. Folks, as good as it gets. That's why we celebrate on Easter. And I want to tell you this. The reason we went through the long ordeal of making this place look like it does so that you could picture yourself. I wanted you to picture yourself walking away from that old standard the law you see running out on your first marriage and running to Christ. You say, what does that look like? It just simply means I admit I'm utterly sinful even when I think I'm my best and my worst. And I've been using that plan to make, make me look good before God. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to run to Christ. And I'm going to put my faith and trust in his death and resurrection. I'd like you to do something for me today. If that's you and you say, I'm, not, I'm running. I'm running from that system I've been using and I'm going to run to Christ. I'd like you to do something for me. Inside your bulletin is a card that looks like this. I would love for you to put your name and then at least one of these lines. You don't have to do all of them. At least one of them. And then in a minute, we're going to stand and sing. I'd like you to come down here. In these little boxes right here, you can grab what is a, a new marriage license. So this day, Easter 2012, I ran away from the law and right into the arms of Christ by putting my faith and trust in his death and resurrection. And I just want to say, you know, at the end of the story, Dr. Jekyll had committed so many crimes and the law has figured out who he is. And they're on their way to get him. Justice is knocking at the door. It's the law. And he is helpless. It seems as though he did everything he could in his life for his good to shine. And it never could get him. Concocted potions, tried his best to live good wasn't enough. Justice was knocking at the door. Eventually it does. And when you look to the law to help you condemn the only possible hope for you is a who? It's Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here today and that's you, you said, no, I didn't come forward. I saw a lot of people in the last couple of services we did. Just come up by themselves afterwards and just grab them. And if that's you, that's fine. I just want you to know I'm praying that God will send that message home in your heart as clear as possible. Because I don't want you to be deceived. I want to pray for you. And I actually want to ask Dave if you would come up and pray and close it. Because I want to go out to that guest in booth. If you have time to say hello, I'd love to. If you're a guest, first time, I'd love to meet you. 
Otherwise, I hope you have a great Easter. I really thank you for being here. And I uh, uh, hope to see you again because we're going to talk more about this.